0: I wonder if you guys could just open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you um, don't have a Bible, there's some at the back there, Uh, 1 Peter 5, I think it's page 1769, if that's incorrect, please let me know. Um, If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one home with you, it'll be our gift to you. We're going to finish off our series that we've been considering this letter, um, titled Exiles. It's been a... a, uh, We've been attempting to look at the letter that Peter wrote to these churches through this single lens that he opens his letter with this address to them, describing them as elect or chosen exiles and a way of stamping upon the minds of the believers to whom he is writing this new identity that they had known their life as being belonging to certain other identity markers. They were Greek or they were... They were Asian of some kind in terms of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And, and suddenly, having switched allegiances primarily to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, having become Christians, something, something happens. They suddenly experienced this, this, ex- this, this exclusion from the world in many ways. And it's hard for us to imagine that now because we're living 2,000 years on in which the mark of Christianity has been indelibly stamped upon the Western world and in which Christianity has been seen as the majority faith. But of course, you need to transport your mind back into that first century when this was regarded as a somewhat bizarre sect, a somewhat strange new cult that was emerging and popping up all across the cities across the Roman Empire, in which these people worshipped this man who had... Uh, who was purported to have died and been raised from the dead. And so all of this was new and weird. And to follow Christ was, in many ways, to turn your back, as it is now, to turn your back on a way of life which which is against his will. And to embrace a new way which marked you out as being strange and weird. And so... the Christians immediately experience the kind of exclusion within their own people groups, within their own society, wherever they were across the world. And Peter wants to remind them, you are exiles. Your home is really with Christ. Your time on earth is characterized by this experience of friction with the world in which you live. And that unless you grasp that, you cannot survive. And the reason why we've been doing this is, of course, that even though the Western world has been, in inverted commas, Christian for some time, there's been something of a radical departure in recent years. Back in the 1960s, Bob Dylan sang that the times they are are changing. And, of course, ever since that was true then in the 1960s, those changes have gathered pace. And if Christianity and the secular world were more or less aligned for a long time, In many respects, there's been a great divergence that's taken place. So that to to, to call yourself Christian now is to embrace a way of living and believing that is radically different, and increasingly so, from the world in which we live. And so that the description of being exiled is increasingly relevant to us in the here and now. And this whole letter has been a consideration of some of the ways that you need to think and conduct yourself in this world if you are to survive, if you are to live a life that's pleasing to Jesus. Now, I know that some of you are not Christian. I want you to understand, of course, that in considering this, you are really getting to grips with something of the cost of following Christ. Being a Christian does entail certain repercussions. And anyone who doesn't come to grips with that is vulnerable. Your, whatever commitment you make won't last so this is always incredibly relevant to those of you who are not Christian. <clears throat> I want to read the whole of the chapter to you during the course of this message, but we're actually just going to start by reading the very final verses, just the last few lines of this chapter, and then we're going to jump in. <clears throat> it says from verse 12, this is his final greetings, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the message. That's the the phrase which captures Peter's whole passion and desire and heart for these Christians. Stand firm in the grace of God. There may be a million assaults that you experience. A million reasons to doubt. He says, stand firm. She who is at Babylon, which is probably Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. It's interesting that John Mark appears here. He's the one who wrote Mark's gospel and is understood to have been a close companion of Peter, and which is where he got the Peter's testimony and wrote it in Mark's gospel. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The thing that we have to understand as we're experiencing increasingly in the Western world, this divergence that I've been describing. The thing we have to understand is that the pressures of exile, the pressure of an increasing conflict and friction between the world's perspectives and beliefs and what it means to follow Christ, the pressures will force one of two results in your life as a Christian. Either believers will fall away and I think this is clear from the New Testament as well as from the teaching of Christ in particular that this is a very real danger. I mentioned to you a week or two ago the parable of the soils in which Jesus described what happens to people who have received his word and yet do not persist in following him. And he described one group of people like this. He says, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, he's describing... A kind of fair-weather Christian. Someone whose Christian life is only good in so far as you're experiencing the benefits of being a Christian. As soon as it gets difficult, that faith is proven to not be real, not to be authentic. And it seems to me that this, to a huge degree, explains the massive fall-off that we've seen within churches in the last half century or so and the fact that they've just been obliterated and emptied. There was a kind of fair-weather Christianity, which was great when the sun was shining, and no longer is sustainable when winter comes, and when people feel this massive contradiction between following Christ and living in this world. There's a little sobering line in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, Second Timothy in which Paul is lamenting a number of his friends who deserted him while he was in prison. And he says this about one of them. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And it seems to me that that is, that is the conflict. That is the fundamental conflict that all of us will experience at moments in our lives. That the love of the world will present a choice. And that choice will at times feel like a violent choice within your own spirit. Whether to follow Christ or whether to follow your desires. Whether the following Christ is really worth it or not. And it seems to me that the harder it gets to be a Christian in whatever context you live, the more likely it is that many will fall away. And that's going to be one result because of fear, because of the temptations that we experience, because of whatever um, doubts that may occur, because of the increasing hostility to this faith that we believe. But there's also the other other chance that many, many people will experience the flourishing of their faith. That in a sense, when it's hard to be a Christian, that is often the best time to discover the why and to put down deep roots which make you more robust in your faith. It seems to me that it's in these times exactly that you can develop courage that you didn't otherwise have. That you can be firmly rooted in God, that you can develop a closer intimacy with Him. And I think that's not mere theory. I think it's it's borne out by the fact that Christians, through the centuries and in parts of the world where it is particularly hard to be a Christian, are often more passionately in love with Jesus. How do you explain that? Because they've had to put down deeper roots and find deeper resources in their faith. They can't cruise. You can't just drift along. And what makes the difference then between one person and another? That's what we've been wrestling with. And the first step, it seems to me, is just understanding that this is a situation we're in. If you're blind to it, then you, are, then you are vulnerable. But understanding the times that we're in seems to me to be absolutely crucial if you were to have a hope of surviving. I think the greatest danger is that you walk into this world with a passive unawareness, that your faith is constantly under siege and under threat. And I think that's a childlike quality. I say that as the father of three kids and knowing that with all of them, there's been a process of them understanding that the world is a dangerous place. You start with the very basic dangers of like electric sockets and hot pans, and then in roads, and it grows to help them understand the wider dangers. And eventually as they're maturing, you help them understand the dangers of the thought world and of different philosophies and worldviews. And if you fail to help them grow in their understanding, you failed as a parent. But the same seems to me to be true within the Christian faith, that those of you who have given your life to Jesus who are Christians, unless you understand the times, unless you grow in your ability to dissect truth from from lies, unless you grow in your ability to perceive what is is in line with the will of God and what is not, then you are basically... uh, it, it, then you're in, you're in danger and you're vulnerable. And it seems to me that the New Testament therefore prepares us for this by its many warnings. I think about passages like the one in again in 2 Timothy where Paul's talking about what he describes as the latter days and he talks about the things that will take place then. He says that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And I, I, I read a list like that and I think that everything about that describes the age in which we live. You must understand it, but then must be another step that you have to then take active steps to prepare yourself to have a faith that can survive in this world. And Peter's advice, what he's been seeking to get across to these believers and what we've wanted to instill in you as we've as we sought to understand the mind of God in this, it's there in the first chapter in, in 1 Peter where he says, In chapter 1, verse 13, it says in this version, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It can be translated like this. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. What are the loins of your mind? In the ancient world, the men wore long robes. And in order to engage in any physical activity or to move anywhere with speed, the custom was to gird up the loins, which is to, to gather up the robes and tie them tightly around your waist so that they would no longer impede your movement. So when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying to these Christians, prepare yourselves. It's, it's the equivalent of saying to them, roll up your sleeves and take be, to be active and not passive in terms of how you grapple with the issues that you're facing as a Christian. You could put it like this you ever been in a, in a strong current? If in a strong current you are passive, you will be swept away. It's happened to me once in a bay down in Cornwall that I was swept out to sea. You, you must fight the current even just to stand still. And the same is true in terms of sustaining your faith. So what I want us to do is in this chapter, I think Peter shows us these three final notes which prepare us to be stronger in this world. And I want to summarize them like this. Decide who to follow, deal with fear, and then dress for the fight. Decide who to follow, deal with fear, and dress for the fight. Here's the first one. We'll read these first five verses. He says, I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you What Peter is describing here are the dynamics of the family in exile, the family of God. And, of course, this aspect of deciding who you follow as a Christian begins and ends with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. Even in these verses, you can see it, that he describes Jesus. As the, he's talking to pastors as elders or as shepherds, but he describes Jesus, Jesus as the chief shepherd. He's the one directing the whole thing. And he reminds these under shepherds, these pastors, of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and of his, his, his resurrection and his future glory. He reminds us all of this because he's, he's imprinting on the minds of us as Christians that fundamentally we follow Christ. And I agree with that. We agree with it passionately. But Christ is not here in his physical presence. And the question is, how does Christ expect us survive, to survive in a hostile environment, in exile as Christians, if he's not here with us. You read the Gospels, you know that the second that Jesus wasn't on the scene, the disciples crumbled. And the New Testament gives us a number of answers, tells us about the importance of the Holy Spirit, the gift given to us of God's Spirit who lives in us, equips us, makes us bold, teaches us God's will. The New Testament talks about the importance of the Word of God, there's no way we would know anything of the mind of God if it were not for this book. And the apostolic doctrine is the New Testament recorded in it. But the Jesus also gave us one other fundamental resource for sustaining faith without him being physically present with us. And what is it? It's the church. It's the church of God. The gathering of God's people, the saints. So, what Peter's doing here, when he talks to the elders and then he talks to the youngers, which just means people who are not elders in the church, who are not the leaders, it just means it's a way of speaking to everyone. What he's describing here is he's delineating the dynamics of how this community is meant to function, lest it become dysfunctional. You and I know that biological families are in danger of becoming dysfunctional. And when they do, the fragmenting power, And the fallout of a broken family is far-reaching. But when you see a beautiful family where the dynamics are, are working well, you see a flourishing. And this is what Peter has in mind. Now, I think when we talk about this, and you noticed how he talks very directly about authority with the elders and submission by the congregation, willingly submitting to leadership that God has put in place... I, I know that we intuitively, as individualist Westerners, react for a number of reasons. And I think there's validity to all of these reactions, by the way, and I just want to say that at the outset. We react because human leaders are imperfect and selfish and flawed. It's true. We react because we think authority is associated with oppression and submission, is with subjugation that that dynamic of authority and submission is inherently evil, we think. And we also react because we have been brought up on our mother's milk to think that the, that the highest way of flourishing is, is to, meet, to, to find my full expression in life, to live out my own destiny. And we are brought fully into the individualist mindset of the West. And therefore, this, is, this transported across into Christianity means that we put all the emphasis on your personal walk with God outside of the community of God. And I want to grant, of course, that all these things have a grain of truth in them, which is what makes them powerful and what makes people detached from church. You know, it's not unusual for people to say, I love Jesus, I just don't like his church. And, and also, even if you do come to church, to sit on the edge, to kind of float around the edge with no meaningful exposure of your life to others in any way that really has an impact on your day-to-day life. I want to suggest, and I think this is why Peter brings us here at the end of his book, I want to say to you, I think that's a dangerous posture to take. I think it's dangerous partly because it's in, in direct defiance of God. In this last verse, when he, verse 5 here, where he said, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That's the will of God, that we live in a family where we understand The the spiritual authority that God's put over us, and then He gives us, He adds this this uh, this uh, next sentence where He says, "Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." We don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we're basically opposed to God, and God is therefore also opposed to us. And my observation over the years is that Christians who have reacted to church as though it were Either because they're angry with church or they were wounded in church or just because they're indifferent or ambivalent towards it. Christians in that position almost invariably experience a wilderness in their faith. Their spirituality dries up. Their love for the Lord wanes. Their ability to withstand temptation disappears. And they find themselves more and more just at one with the world and away from Jesus Christ. I have very rarely if ever seen an exception to that. And I think this is why Peter brings us back here at this, in this last chapter. He wants us to understand that the church is utterly essential to our survival. As flawed as it may be, the Christian faith has never survived apart from the reality of this community. Local expressions like this one. And we may have... Very personal and very valid grievances with church or with church leaders from our past. We may just have prejudices, but whatever the realities are, Peter says, no, no, this is how it's meant to work. But I want to remind you of what he says in these verses. Because even if you have problems with church, the picture he paints of the kind of leadership and the kind of submission that is described here is a beautiful picture Think about it. Instead of of giving giving some allowance to the human flaws in leadership, he instead says this. He says to the leader, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I know that there are churches in which pastors have shameful gain, desire shameful gain. And I think that, you know, thinking broadly about what that is, I think it probably means the desire to be in authority, the desire to be in the spotlight in a way that ser- serves you. And, you know, this is something we should rightly be allergic to when we see it. And it seems to me it's one of the first signs that you see of this is a, uh, leaders or pastors who are, who are interested in, putting their own name in the spotlight, or who are people-pleasers. In contrast to that, what Peter describes here is is pastors who serve Jesus eagerly. I think the the model of that is all the way through the New Testament. You read the letters of Paul, you read the life that he lived, and also of John the Baptist. What does it say about John the Baptist? He said that he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. In other words, he says, it's not about me, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of chapters later in John's Gospel, it says about John the Baptist that he said, I must decrease, but he must increase. Friends, there's nothing inherently wrong with leadership in the church, but what we're looking for is this kind of, this deflection to the glory of Jesus Christ all the time. It's about him. It's about his kingdom. It's about his rule. And where you find that, jump in. He also talks about the way leaders should use authority. He says not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. You know we in our day and age we despise authority. We despise it, don't we? You look at the reactions in our own hearts and on the media to the results of an election you see how we despise authority. And sometimes with good reason. But the New Testament describes godly authority as an authority which doesn't crush people around around you, but rather raises them up and causes them to flourish. And I think the ultimate model of this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's never any doubt, is there, in the Gospels that Jesus has authority wherever he goes, both with the people who are explicitly his followers and with people who are his opponents. They feel his presence wherever he is, and they are unable to, get to answer his, his questions. He exudes authority. But what does his authority do to people around him? It elevates them. Now, that, that seems to be something which just doesn't compute with the Western mind. How can authority and command actually cause people around you to be elevated? And yet, that's exactly what it does. You look at these disciples... They all would have lived completely um, unknown lives in obscurity but for the fact that they came into contact with Jesus Christ and then Jesus lifts them. You think about the women in the Gospels. Think about someone like Mary, Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrection. Her life was a mess until she met Jesus and the authority of submitting to his rule elevated her. And I just see this pattern. This is how the Bible works. It's counterintuitive, but the Bible says you must put yourself under God's authorities if you want to see the blessing of God in your life and that flourishing. And there is no exception that I'm aware of to that rule all the way through Scripture. What he pictures here is a church that gladly commits. Commits. And I want to challenge you. You know, when you think about this this verse, verse 5, where it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. What he's describing is people who recognize their desperate need for the family of God. You can't be maverick. You can't be independent. You can't go alone. You've got to open your life up in humility to others. And it may be the case, and I want to be direct with you, it may be the case that you've been on the edge of church or not at church at all for some time. God would want you to be at the heart of his community. He would want you to be meaningfully related to the spiritual authorities in the church. He would want you to be experiencing the flourishing that comes when your life is exposed in that way, when you humble yourself in that way, because in so doing, the Bible says God elevates you. He gives you strength. He frees you. And I want you to just remember all of this is in the context of what it means to live in exile. Peter knows the only chance the church has is if they stand together. It's been true all the way through military history, hasn't it? And you've seen the movie 300. Those 300 men repelling. Wave upon wave, thousands upon thousands of Persian, Persian attackers. Why? Because they fought as one unit. There's a sense in which this is how the church has always survived. That's That wonderful unity that exists. Are you passionately devoted to and knitted into the body of Christ? Are you? Decide who to follow, he says. Then he tells us this, deal with fear. I'm going to read the next couple of verses from verse 6. Humble yourselves, he says, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now how? What is Peter's tone at this point? His tone is of a pastor who understands what these Christians are going through, understands what's going on in their hearts, and he understands their greatest enemy. And what is it? It's the fear the gnawing anxieties and doubts and uncertainties that were crippling to the lives of ordinary believers. And there were valid reasons. We've got to to understand there were valid reasons for them to be feeling this way. To become a Christian meant that even their livelihood could come under threat. That The relationships that they, they knew would no longer be the same. That they might experience some kind of rejection and abuse or worse. That they were considered eccentric, you know, away from the center. That they were excluded in these, in these ways. And the effect, of course, when you experience that is that you begin to worry. You begin to feel afraid. You begin to feel concerned for your well-being, for the well-being of those that you take care of. And what does that do to you? It causes you to withdraw. It causes you to turn inwards. In distress. And I want to ask you this question. Because I think anxiety is no, no less a problem today than it would have been then. Even if, you know, on the, on the face of things, our lives have improved beyond recognition. Nevertheless, it seems to me that worry is still a very real and present issue. And one that affects Christians and, and cripples them. How do we deal with it? And I, want to, I, I believe the answer is you've got to get to its root. We can't allow it just to be cast as a biological predisposition. Now, I know that that's true. You know, my two oldest kids are poles apart in personalities. One of them is utterly carefree. The other one is deeply responsible and worries about things just naturally. And I know some of you are given to worry that way, but we can't allow it to be an excuse. Nor can we think of it as a, as a kind of harmless foible. That it's just part of your personality in that way. I think what we've got to get to is understand what what Peter's telling us here. That sustained and chronic anxiety and fear, which is crippling, is rooted in pride and unbelief. I think it's clear from the way Peter writes. He calls them to humility. Humble yourselves, he says. Under the mighty hand of God. Casting all your anxieties upon him. And I think it implies, if you give this a moment's thought, it tells us, it shows us that that all of our worry is rooted in pride and that pride leads to worry. And you play that out for a second with me, you realize just how deeply true that is. Because what does pride lead to in the How is it expressed in the Christian life? Pride is always expressed as prayerlessness. That independence from God that doesn't go to him first in absolute need independence. Pride is expressed in the desire to control yourself and your circumstances. And of course, the more we try and control things, the more anxious we get when we realize how powerless we are and how weak we are. Of course, a Christian who is in the middle of exile, who experiences a threat to their faith, who still tries to control and, and, and lives with this way, is going, to, is, is going to implode. They are. What's the solution? The question I'm asking is, how do Christians, and listen, picture this, how do Christians become careless in the best sense, not carrying cares in a wrong way, and confident how does that happen? You know, the, the, the image that I love in the scriptures of the, the Proverbs 31 wife. She's described as this omni-competent person who runs a business and runs a household and makes the clothes for her children and, her, and um, supports her, her husband's career and has this unbelievable you know, hand in every single pie, just amazing person. And what does it say about her? She has a model, really, to aspire to for all of us in one sense. It says she laughs at the time to come. In a way, I think that verse is a, a kind of key to the whole chapter. She has this unbelievable peace, a confidence in approaching life, knowing that God's in control. And I ask, why does that matter? Well, because for one thing, it strengthens your witness, and what I mean by that is, you know, what does it say, what does your emotional life say about the God that you believe in? Does your, does your joy and your confidence communicate the goodness of the God you believe in, or does it rather say that he doesn't love you, and isn't in control, and doesn't mean to do you good? It seems to me that we're living in a world which is racked with the problems of anxiety, And it is not a surprise to me because we live with this deep cosmic insecurity having been cut off from any knowledge of God. In other words, the more secular the world becomes, the more anxious it becomes and it makes perfect sense. Why would we not be anxious in a godless universe? And therefore, a Christian has an opportunity to stand out in a profound way by our sense of measured peace and joy. And freedom from worry and fear. It also helps you to love others. I don't know about you, but I know that the times in my life when I've allowed anxiety to take root are the times when I'm most likely to withdraw from other people, tend to my own issues, tend to my own concerns, and not allow my heart to open up in affection and love to others and service to others. And so I think this is an urgent issue. And the answer that Peter gives us, what does he tell us? How does he tell us that we can solve this? He tells us, friends, the fears that you would otherwise have will melt when you have a deeper knowledge of God. Humble yourselves, he says. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I don't think that... Peter expects them to experience any kind of freedom from worry unless they understand the mightiness of God. And it seems to me that that is something that Peter himself had come to understand. How had he understood it? Well, look, this is the same man. I was reminding you a few weeks ago. This is the same man who, when Jesus is on trial, denies Jesus. Fear grips him. But something happens between then and the day of Pentecost when he preaches to to thousands in Jerusalem about... Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. What happened? Well, he saw, he, saw, he saw Jesus killed and he saw him raised from the dead. In other words, he got the privilege of seeing a story play out in which the tension built up of Christ being on trial, of Christ being crucified, and then resolved through the power of God showing himself, coming down to save through the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that solved, for once and for all, Peter's issues. Peter's issues. It solved his doubts. It solved his concerns. It solved his theology, essentially. Because he saw the whole arc of the story being played out in front of him. Saw that God is in control. That God is working things together for good. That God's plans cannot be thwarted. Our anxieties always reveal deficiencies in our theology. Peter... Had grown to know something of the mightiness of God. And friend, the deeper that you come to know the Lord, the more that fear can dissipate. So he tells us, decide who to follow, be part of a family. He tells us deal with fear. We ought to, of all people on earth, be the most confident, to be the most peace-filled. And then he tells us this last thing: dress for the fight. I want to read to you verses 8 to 11. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is really Peter's final note in his letter. and uh, This is where we end. What is it? It is a final call to robust, assertive stance against the devil and his schemes. The devil wants to take you out. That's what the Christian needs to understand and know. And Peter's saying, look, you need to get this. It's a reminder that this Christian life is a spiritual battle. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, against the principalities and powers of this dark age. Now, why, why do we need to finish here? And I think, I think the answer is that Christians don't immediately grasp this. Certainly in our context, we forget the seriousness of what we're doing. We stumble into monotony and boredom and the ordinariness of life that you you go through the motions. You go to church on a Sunday. You go to work every Monday. And so your life just unfolds in a very mundane, plodding way. And you can begin to forget that the entirety of the Christian life is a life lived in a kind of death battle. Where life and death are at issue here. Heaven and hell. That there is a kind of spiritual war for your very soul and those around you that's at play. And the the more secular we become, the more detached we become from any real meaningful spirituality, I think the less aware we are of the spiritual realm. I've been reading a little bit of church history recently and it's interesting to read how Um, and I've heard these stories before, but how Martin Luther, you know Martin Luther, the great reformer, grown up as he was within the corruption that that the Catholic Church had become uh, in the late late, um, 1400s and 1500s, he, discovering afresh the gospel, pinned his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, but then was summoned to a kind of trial to discover whether he was a heretic or not. It's called the Diet of Worms. And he went there, guaranteed safe passage. It was a three-week journey. He went there, was found to be a heretic, and was allowed to return home safely back into, his, uh, into Wittenberg. On the way, he was abducted by a man called Friedrich, who was uh, a, friendly, uh, a man who was friendly to, to, to Luther's way of thought and wanted to protect him. So he was kidnapped, but actually for his own protection. And he was hidden away in a castle called Wartburg. I suppose that's how the Germans say it. Wartburg, we'd say. He was hidden away and disguised as a knight. And while he's there, he was there for something like six months. He was there in hiding um, with, with some servants to attend to his needs. Luther went through, this is early in his ministry, and it, it, you know, as his name was just beginning to rise on people's consciousness, he went through something of the battle of his life in terms of what he perceived as a spiritual battle, it got intense. As he was in his room in, in, the, in the tower of that castle, he had these... These, these ideas that he was somehow doing battle with the devil himself, that the devil was tempting him in all kinds of ways and he had to do battle on a day to daily basis and he was in the pits. He had constipation. I mean, I don't understand the connection, but it must have been something about that psychosomatic thing where your body expresses what you're going through emotionally. And, all, and this is how he was existing for months. He even on one occasion, an unknown dog came into his room and he threw the dog out the window because he thought it was a demonic manifestation. And we read this kind of thing You think the guy was going crazy But then I ask, well, well, was he? And the reason I say that is because It was in those months that he began His greatest project Which actually had the biggest impact Beyond his own life Which was the translation of the Bible from Greek The New Testament from Greek Into contemporary German Using the language of ordinary folk A project which changed his country high spiritual stakes. And apparently upon writing it, completing it, even his constipation was eased. It was like everything just got moving. And it's just so interesting, isn't it, that that man understood himself to be in a spiritual battle. And you think, was he wrong? I rather suspect he was right. That if anything, it's us who are wrong with our blindness, our lack of perception of the situation that we are in on a day-to-day basis. And so... What Peter does here is he gives these guys a kind of final pep talk. It's a little bit like that moment in the boxing match where the boxer is called into the corner of the ring and he sits down, he spits out his gum guard, he has a little drink, and then the coach gets in his face and starts yelling at him. Who knows what they yell? I suppose it's just, punch the other guy. Punch him harder. Punch him more than he punches you. And somehow, sometimes it works. And this is what Peter's calling to him. He says, get out there and punch And I want to show you the four things he says right at the close of this letter. He tells them firstly, stay sharp. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls round like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, our, our, our purpose in this series has been to grasp the cultural moment in which we live. And in a way... I think I could put it like this that my my desire has been that you would wake up. I've seen too many, too many Christians over the years fall away because of a failure to to stay awake in the way that Peter's describing here. And if you fail to stay awake, Peter's saying you're meat. I wasn't so long ago, I was I was watching a clip from a BBC Nature documentary that was on online and it, was, it showed a pack of mules, a herd of mules. And mules are an interesting cre- creature. They're, they're a cross between a horse and a donkey. So they're man-made creature, two different species. And they can't reproduce themselves, but they're useful to, mankind, to men because they are hard-working animals. But because they're a, a creature which doesn't occur in the wild, they don't have natural instincts. And one in, in particular, they don't have the instinct to run away when they're in trouble. And this camera footage was of this this, this herd of mules just walking around a field eating grass and, and lions were just going one after the other, just pulling them down, biting them, killing them, and then going to the next one. And the mules are trotting around like nothing's going on, like what's happening here? And they have no idea what, what's going on. They don't understand the threat they're under. And Peter's saying, listen, that's what a lot of Christians can be like. Stay awake, he says. Be sober-minded. Wake up. do you understand the threat to your faith? by the things that you're listening to, the conversations, the things you're imbibing. It's not that he says you don't want to be engaged in all of that, but know what you're engaging with. Stay sharp, he says. Then he says, know what you believe. Resist him, he says, verse 9. Firm in your faith. I think there was a time not so long back when because of the predominant cultural Christianity that pertained in our context, it was possible to survive as a Christian with very little knowledge of the faith which you professed. In a sense, the tide was high, and so all of of us were buoyed up by the tide. But if anything, the season, the tide has changed. It's gone out. And it seems to me that this situation is no longer the case. And most Christians, I'll put it like this, who I've seen fall away have done so because of their tenuous and patchy grasp of their faith. One of the analogies that we used earlier in the series was of the changing seasons. It's possible when the sun is up and it's summertime, as it has been for Christianity in the West for a long time, it's possible to survive with few layers. You know, a pair of shorts and a wife beater vest, the equivalent of And then what happens? As the the seasons change and the cold, the biting cold comes in and winter comes in, everything changes. Only those people who are equipped, who are dressed well, who survive the winter. And in a sense, this is what Peter's talking about when it comes to understanding your faith. And it's been running all the way through this letter, but he says it here again. Resist him, firm in your faith. And it reminded me of what he said over in chapter 3. He says, in your hearts, on the Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense an apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Engage in, in discussion, of course, but you need to know where you stand and why. It's not that these, there are not answers, but it seems to me that too many Christians don't know them. Wake up, he says. Know what you believe, he says. And then he says this other thing. He says, make the church your primary identity. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What's he doing there? I think he's trying to do, as he's been seeking to do throughout the entire letter, he's trying to help these Christians make a shift in terms of their identity. They may have thought of themselves as Greeks or Cappadocians or Bithynians or whatever it, it was, wherever they came from. He, they may have thought of themselves with that identity. Now he's saying to them, no, 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 you are now a Christian. You remember those verses in chapter 2 where he says to them that you are a chosen race. He's using the language of national identity here. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Because what he's saying here is that to be a Christian is to allow this new identity to usurp and take over all former identities. You thought, you know, you you have your passport that, that means you're either from the United Kingdom or from Malaysia or Singapore or Russia or wherever it is you're from. And he says, in a sense, the minute you become a Christian, that passport is handed in and you receive a new one. But not all Christians get this exchange. Where you derive your sense of belonging will, to a large extent, determine the strength that you experience on a day-to-day basis as a Christian. Either you want to belong to the world, and your identity is firmly rooted in this world and in what this world can offer you, in terms of its success, in terms of its acceptance, in terms of the relationships and so on. In which case, if that's you, what happens when you're being attacked or mocked for your faith? Well, what happens is because your identity is here with the world, you detach from your Christian faith. A pattern I've seen far too often. And what Peter rather than wants the Christians to do is to take a step sideways and say, no, 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 don't you understand this is who you are, you're, you're a believer. And to have solidarity, as it were, with the Christians all around the world. And the things he said to them then are even more relevant to us now. When he says to us that these things are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, you and I know. You know, because you can fill in this picture there, what that means. You know that whatever hardship you might experience, whatever sense of fear you might experience owning your faith, whatever mockery you might endure, is as nothing compared with believers and brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. It seems to me that this is the transfer that Peter himself had to make to identify fully with Christ to identify fully with the cross to identify fully with the church and that's what gave him his robust powerful stance the same stance which eventually led to his own crucifixion in Rome hung upside down on a cross what kind of a man willingly gives his life in that way somebody who feels in their heart that i belong to Christ I belong to his church. His people are my people. And then this last thing. He tells you to set your mind on the future hope. It's there in verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What he's saying to these Christians is this. He's saying, listen, as he said elsewhere, these are are fleeting, fleeting struggles that you're going through right now. God has something in store for you. That's what he said right at the first chapter. When he described us as having been saved in chapter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Ultimately, what he's discover- encouraging you to do is to recognize that the faithful Christian is someone who has who reckoned with this calculation. Either the promises of God that relate to the future are empty, and in which case, no amount of suffering could possibly be worth enduring for the cause of Christ, if it's all just hot air. Why would you? Just live your life well, now. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, as the Ecclesiastes puts it. Or, the promises of God are true and real. That when Jesus gave promises of reward, and when he gave promises of inheritance and of eternal life with him, all of that is real. In fact, if anything, it's more real than what you know here and now, because it's more lasting, undefiled and unfading, he describes it. And you may be sat there asking yourself the question, well, how can we know? Because of course, if it's all true, then any amount of suffering is worth enduring in the present that I might possess what cannot be taken away. And you ask, well, how can you know? And the answer is very simple. The resurrection. The resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... All of our future hope is gas. It's just air. It's nothing. But if Jesus was raised from the dead in that physical body that emerged from the tomb, and if he ascended to the Father's right hand, and if he's one day going to return to reclaim his world, and I have every reason to believe that that is true, and Peter himself describes it, as a witness of these things and in fact died for this claim if it's true then friend that ought to give you the deepest possible certainty rock like faith upon which you can live this Christian life this whole series is about bringing about hopefully inducing a kind of a shift in our minds where we think of ourselves differently where we're more robust where we're more prepared because we ultimately recognize that our whole lives are standing upon Christ and his claims it seems to me that the church desperately needs to grasp this and I want to ask you have you is this who you are is this what you love is this what you live for Maybe you can pray with me. We want to ask the Holy Spirit to just seal this in our hearts and confirm in our hearts this new way of thinking, this identity. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we do, we do look at our own lives and we see our weakness. We see cowardice. We see doubt. We see uncertainty, we see independence, we see a lack of spiritual fervor, and Lord, we pray that in place of that you will I pray, Lord, that you 'll bring about a new way of thinking that just like when people are in a state of war they live they can endure so much as our grandparents or great grandparents did in the second world war they were they're living on rations and that wartime mentality brought about we get, they had a kind of a backbone I pray Lord Jesus that we, even within us <coughs> within us as believers within this church that we would have that kind of fortitude certainty clarity What we're doing here, the ability to stand. Amen.